Hello, and welcome to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kate Cronin. This program is part of an ongoing speaker series in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who share their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the rapidly changing media landscape. This week's guest is Jaron Wright. 2005 was a busy year for Jaron Wright. He won a national championship with University of Texas Longhorns football team in February, graduated in May, and moved to Malibu, California that summer to begin his law degree at the Pepperdine University Caruso School of Law. At Pepperdine, Wright was no less busy than he had been at UT. In addition to earning his JD, he also served as student body president and concurrently secured his MBA from Pepperdine's Grazia Dio School of Business and Management. Today, Jaron Wright is a multimedia technology businessman and attorney in the entertainment industry. He currently serves as business affairs executive at Amazon Studios, where he negotiates high-level deals for original drama, comedy, genre, and adult animated series for exploitation on the Prime Video platform. He's also served as legal counsel for Google YouTube Originals and corporate counsel for Amazon Studios, where he oversaw numerous film and television projects from development through distribution for both domestic and international markets. Most notably, Wright served as counsel for award-winning television projects such as the All or Nothing franchise, Thursday Night Football, Transparent, and Fleabag, just to name a few. Jaron Wright spoke to UT students on September 28, 2020, and the conversation was hosted by Dr. Elisa Perrin. Okay, welcome everyone to our media industry conversation with Mr. Jaron Wright. I'm so thrilled to be welcoming him today. I've been wanting to bring him in for a while, and uh, it's, I'm thrilled that this has worked out. In terms of what we're going to be talking about today, uh, we're going to be walking through uh, his initial career goals at UT when he was a corporate communication major here, and then talk a bit about his career trajectory moving from um, a firm to in-house counsel at Amazon and Google and back to Amazon, and then talking a bit about his views on the current state of the media industries and technology industries, I guess we can say, and then end with some Q&A and some advice for everyone. So let me just say welcome, Jaron. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. Long overdue. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's just start off with broad strokes, giving everyone kind of a sense of uh, what you do in your current position as a business affairs executive at Amazon, sort of what's the scope and what are your main responsibilities? Yeah, so uh, in my capacity as a BA, as we call it, exec at Amazon Studios, I basically negotiate um, above the line deals uh, for you know, our engagement of actors, writers, directors, uh, showrunners, non-writing executive producers, um, and things like that. So the, I guess the best way to think about it simply without any having any sort of knowledge of the industry is I'm an agent on behalf of Amazon Studios. So I would negotiate with uh, other agents who represent those actors or writers or directors to negotiate, you know, how much money, how long do we have you, how many options uh, can we, can we trigger from, for subsequent seasons, those types of things. So. <clears throat> Very cool. And it sounds like that's somewhat different from what you've done before, but I know that we'll, we'll get there. 
in due course. Yeah. <laughs> in due course. Well, I want to go back a little bit now and just talk about uh, how you ended up at UT and sort of what you were thinking you might be interested in doing while you were here. Yeah. So actually a bit of an interesting story. I, I knew I was going to go to UT when I was in like fourth grade. So ever since I was about 10 years old, I told my parents, you know, I want to go to the University of Texas. And we have pictures of our whole family on vacation in front of the big gate in front of the, uh, the I think it's the north end of the stadium. Um, and so, yeah, it's been something I always wanted to do. And around that same time, I always said I wanted to be a lawyer um, as well, which was like very ignorant of me, my 10 year old self who didn't know what a, a bar exam or an LSAT was at the time. So, um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I ended up at UT and I was a student athlete as well on the football team. So when I got here, I walked onto the team um, as an invited walk on. So that was sort of my uh, track when I got here to, to the University of Texas. So. Wow. I, I don't know how you can balance all of that. That's pretty amazing to be a student athlete, but also be sort of preparing for a life as a attorney. <laughs> yeah, it was a, uh, I, I, I balanced it somehow. It wasn't easy at, um, at, at most times, but, you know, just prioritizing and we had a great support system and, you know, all my coaches and we had academic counselors who were great too within the football program too at that time. So, so um, around what time frame, if you don't mind saying was this uh, not to age you or anything? Yeah, no, I, yeah, exactly. Um, no, so this was uh, from 2002 to 2006. So I graduated you know, after our big victory in Pasadena. Um, so it was, it was quite the time to be a Longhorn, but yeah, that was my time frame. I don't feel aged at all. <laughs> that wasn't that long ago. So yeah. <laughs> you've, you've accomplished a lot in a pretty short time span. So in terms of being a student here, you knew you wanted to do law. How, did, how or when did the entertainment component fit into this? Yeah, that didn't actually come into play until my second year of law school. Um, and the backstory to that is, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm only bringing it up because it's in context. But, you know, while I was in college, I was involved in the music industry. And so, I mean, it was for fun. It wasn't anything serious. But I was in like a cover band with some of my best friends in college. Uh, a few of those guys who were CIGAPs and stuff like that. And uh, we would just play like frat parties and stuff and play, you know, a bunch of covers. And it ended up being pretty lucrative. And so when I moved out to law school, one of the guys in my band moved out to L.A. at the same time and we tried it for real. And so I was like, man, I really love entertainment and I'm in law school and I'm not going to quit. So I need to figure out how to combine these two passions. And so I actually started out trying to pursue music law. And that's how that was my sort of uh, entry into the or introduction into the legal and entertainment sector. Oh, wow. Yeah. So did you go straight from undergrad to law school? Straight out. I, literally, we won a national championship in January. I graduated in May and then went to Malibu in August. So it was not a lot of time to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, you did a, did you do a joint JD and MBA or how did that whole process work for you and what led you to do both of those? Yeah, I didn't initially intend to do the MBA as well. I was, uh, so I think I was like a year and a half or two years into my law degree and I had a mentor who was on the board of directors um, at Pepperdine. And he just said, you know, while you're in school, it probably makes sense to just 
get the NBA too. I think, you know, it would help you in the long run. And at that time I thought, you know, the economy was starting to crash. If you remember 2007, eight, uh, the economy was like in bad shape and it kind of made sense to, to stay in school for me for another year. And, uh, so I was able to do the joint JD MBA, um, at that time and it, and for entertainment, you know, any sort of like, you know, knowledge that you can obtain in terms of finance, accounting, they, they translate into our industry. I don't think you necessarily need them per se, um, but they definitely help me um, to, to hone in on my skills. So when you were in law school, were you taking specific classes or in other ways preparing for entertainment law or were you doing outside sort of internship or externship types of experiences? Like how were you sort of navigating this path? Yeah, so once I made the decision to, to pursue entertainment law, uh, to answer the first part of the question, I, I took copyright classes and, uh, you know, other sort of specific coursework aimed at the entertainment industry generally, because we didn't really, they didn't really have specific courses in law school for, you know, TV law or whatever it is that you're going to practice, but they would bring in a, you know, an adjunct professor, uh, one or two a semester where you could learn about copyright or uh the TV movie and music business all as a sort of survey course. And so I would, I started to hone in on those courses. And then in terms of internships, I did intern quite a bit uh, in law school. My first one was uh, for a guy named Rob Shemansky, who represents talent and, uh, as a lawyer and a solo practitioner. And I just uh, was his assistant, which was basically like getting coffee, check, you know, handling his calendar, rolling calls, things like that. And then from, from there, my internship started to gain some momentum and I was able to intern at almost every major studio in town from there, uh, NBC Universal. And then from there, I got the Disney Music Business and Legal intern, summer associate internship, which is kind of a big one. And then uh, for two or three semesters in a row, I was uh, the legal intern for ABC Studios Business Affairs. And, and that was, those are my internships. So. Wow. So what kinds of things like are internships that you're doing when they're, when you're in law school, are they substantively different than the kinds of internships that people would be doing just without that law school sort of trajectory? What kind of response? I don't think so. I think, I think it's, uh, I think I was more focused on my goal at that mm -hmm. point. So, you know, in college, you know, I didn't really understand the gravity of what I wanted to do you know, for my career, I knew I wanted to be a quote unquote lawyer, but I didn't know what that meant yet. So my, I wouldn't have had any direction in terms of, you know, being specific in which inter inter, uh, internships I would have taken. So once I got to law school and I knew exactly what I wanted to do, that specificity or that focus, you know, sort of uh, helped me to, to like go after exactly what I wanted to. So. So I'm curious, I know that we have several students in the class that are wondering whether they should go to law school or whether they should get an MBA. And I'm curious if, <laughs> if they want to work in Hollywood, right? Or tech, I guess, some line between that such as it is. And I'm curious if you have advice or suggestions that you could share about whether or not they should do that. Yeah, I think it depends on exactly what you want to do. So if you know you want to be an agent, then you don't need to go to law school. Just go straight to the mailroom, you know, when things get better at WME, CAA and all these other places, ICM, just go straight to the mailroom and just like start working hard knowing that you, you won't make very much money. Um, you know, I would say explore and research 
the different types of roles in Hollywood because the vast majority of them don't actually require you to get, you know, advanced degrees. It helps if you want to be like at a studio or a big tech company to get an MBA or something like that, or a law degree if you want to be a lawyer. But if you want to be an editor, or if you want to be, you know, on camera talent or a producer, um, whether that's physical production or on the finance side, you know, research what it is you want to do and then sort of, uh, you know, figure out your plan to make it speak to exactly what, what it is you want to do. So I would say don't go into debt unnecessarily if you don't have to. Um, you don't have to. It's all a choice. And, and be diligent now while you have time. You know, I just think even with even playing football and being a student athlete, how much time I had um, when I was in college, you kind of take it for granted because, you, you know, you're hanging out, you're doing what you're supposed to do in college, which is have a great time. But when you have a little bit of time to just like pop your laptop open and just research, just like hit a Google search and look at all the credits that are given on a different TV show or a movie or a podcast even and see what types of roles you would be interested in. You know, in the information age, especially you guys have so much access to everything. There's really no excuse to not know anymore. You can't plead ignorance. So get after it. Um, have fun, but get after it. Thanks. It's helpful to hear that encouragement, I think, especially right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, I'm wondering if we can just hit on some of the sort of key moments in your career so far. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about your position at Abrams, Garfinkel, Margolis, and Benson, if that, that's the name of the firm that you were at right out of school. Is that correct? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, Abrams, Garfinkel, Margolis, Bergson, a lot of a mouthful. Um, but yeah, that was, that was uh, my first firm job which was a lot of production legal. We did a lot of non-scripted shows for like A&E. Um, I'm just trying to think of what, what shows we did. We, we did like the Shark Week shows and things like that. So it was a nice intro um, into sort of like substantive legal work in the entertainment industry. Um, but before that, now I think this is more, more of an important point that you wouldn't necessarily see you know, on my, my highlights is that actually between that my first firm job and graduating from grad school, I was an assistant on a desk at ABC Studios. So I, my, while my friends and my roommates were top of the class, you know, going to Jones Day, these huge firms and making a lot of money, I wanted, I knew that even at any cost, I needed to stay in the entertainment industry. So I took a, a, a couple of assistant jobs for, you know, very low hourly pay, just like kind of scraping by uh, to, to sort of stay on my track and it paid off, um, with the consulting job at ABC studios legal, and then ultimately at the law firm that I ended up at. So, so what the consulting job at ABC legal, what kind of work were you doing when you, when you were there versus then when you moved to Abrams at all? Yeah. So that was, a, that was scripted TV at the time. So I think the show at the time that they were developing was the shield. So I did a lot of work on the shield, um, as a consultant, for, and at that time, you know, they're not going to let me handle the A-level actor deals as a, you know, right out of law school um, person. But I did get to work on the, the, the special effects deals and some of the lower level and below the line studio deals. So, Cool. And so then you moved to the firm, right? Or was this, well, you yeah, then I moved to the firm. That's okay. right. So what kinds of things were you doing? Like, how would you compare being at a firm versus being in-house counsel? Like, what are the distinctions between that? Yeah, I think the main distinction is at a firm, you have multiple clients. 
so like I had a, you know, a bunch of my clients were studios and small studios and small production companies and producers and some fashion companies, things like that. Whereas at, you know, when you go in house, your one client is your, the company that you, you represent. So uh, when I went from, from the firm AGMB to Amazon studios, you know, Amazon studios becomes your one and only client. So then your, you know, your, uh, your interests are narrowed to that one entity. Gotcha. So I'm curious, you make the leap to Amazon as corporate counsel. What, what is kind of the scope of what you're doing there? And like, how large is the legal team that you're working with? Yeah, so I think some, some context is important here. When I got to Amazon Studios the first time, the studio had just launched like a couple of years prior. So, I mean, we could fit the whole studio in one conference room at that time. It was like 30, 30 or 35, 40 people uh, when I got there. So the legal team uh, in that regard was only like seven people, six or seven people, which for the amount of content we were putting out at that time was is like unheard of. So... Um, and the scope of that job was I came in on the unscripted side for my first, you know, year and a half. And so I handled shows like All or Nothing, which you've seen that series. If you go on Amazon, you'll see there's a series of sports shows that um, came from that first season uh, that we did uh, with the NFL. And um, I did a bunch of non-scripted shows there. And then from there, I went over to the scripted side and then handled shows like Mozart in the Jungle, Red Oaks. Um, flea bag, um, things like that. So cool. So is it different? Like when you say you handled those shows, like what is it that you were doing at that time? And like, how is it different from like the kinds of things you're doing now? Yeah. So as, so as in-house counsel, I would manage a team of outside counsel. So our lawyers, we would handle and sort of, you know, once you have the experience of knowing how to negotiate all the deals, then you sort of manage other attorneys and make sure all those smaller deals are being closed within the parameters of the studio. So, hey, you know, don't pay too much money here. Uh, don't add this language here, add that language here. Yes, we can do that. No, we cannot do that. Um, and so, and then overseeing production legal. So if there's any issues we may have on set, like, you know, somebody breaks their arm or something, then I'm on the phone with our production team and insurance and things like that. So it ranges, like I ratings, there's all kinds of stuff that goes along with that. So are you, um, like, is it different anything in terms of the process when you're dealing with scripted versus unscripted versus sports content? Or like, is it, is it pretty much like you have contracts, you're negotiating deals or like, how, how is it variable? Yeah. And I think we'll be able to highlight this a little better too, when we come back to what I do now, but essentially the difference is the guilds, right? So in unscripted content, you don't have to worry about SAG, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, that is, or, you know, the Writers Guild, um, or any of, or the Directors Guild for that matter. So that's SAG, the WGA, if you ever heard it or read about it, or the DGA, um, those guilds that represent, uh, you know, those creatives um, on the scripted side. So non-scripted is much cheaper to make uh, because of that, because you don't have to meet certain minimum um, compensation requirements. So when you see a show that you love on TV, like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, whatever it is you watch on E, because they have a ton of that type of content, or documentaries, they're much cheaper to make because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to worry about the guilds. Now the Kardashians are, you know, different now because they, the talent fee on that show is probably like astronomical now because they make E so much money. But anyway, 
Yeah, but I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so are there any other items you'd note in terms of your time the first time around as corporate counsel, things you'd highlight in terms of the experience or that you took away from it? Yeah, I think, uh, see, that was an interesting time to me and my, and I don't think it's anything substantive. I think it's more uh, like the time I was there, we were building policy. You know, we were building infrastructure and the studio hadn't even gone global yet, by the, you know, when I first got there. So, you know, now we have international, localized international programming around the world. You know, I helped to build the India studio um, and the Japanese studio for Amazon when I was there the first time. So I wasn't just negotiating contracts, but I was building infrastructure and policy for, you know, our operations around the world. So. Wow. That's and the UK too. Yeah. In, in the UK. So I'm curious, um, this is around 2011, 2012. Is that right? Yes. Uh, so this is, no, this is later. So uh, this is like 2015, okay. 2016, 2017. Yeah. Okay. So they're just getting up and running. How big is Amazon Studios at that point in time? At that point. So by the time I left, we, we could fit everybody in a movie theater for like our all hands meeting. So it had to be like 200 people or something like that. So when I got there, it was like 50. By the time I left, it had grown to like 200. I mean, I think that how would you compare, you can say, like being at an Amazon versus being at a Disney or a NBC, you know, how is it similar or different? Yeah, so I would say it's different at that time because, uh, you know, you, you basically work at a tech company first and foremost. So, you know, Amazon Studios, the prime video platform is just one folder in the portfolio of Amazon. You know, you have AWS, you have Amazon proper who delivers packages as you guys know. So, you know, what we did is just one folder in the portfolio of, of what they do there. And so there's not a whole lot of pressure on the content, like, you know, being the end all be all. Whereas at a Disney, you know, I guess it's kind of the same there where they had the parks and recreation, but you know, if you're at a traditional studio where it's not linked to any other um, revenue stream, then there's a lot of pressure to make really good TV, you know? So, and you guys were making far less during that point in time as well, in terms of just your volume of output, right? I think we were on par actually, which is, really? what, which is the crazy part about it. You know, you don't make everything you develop way more than what actually gets green light. But I think we were pretty close to being on par with major studios and networks for what we were outputting. I mean, we, were, we even were at that time, we had movies out, which is unheard of for the amount of people working behind the scenes to make that happen. You know, we had Chirac with uh, Spike Lee and, um, you know, I think uh, uh, some other, the Casey Affleck movie we had, you know, so we Manchester did by the sea. Manchester by the Sea. That's right. So those movies were in production well before you got to see them. So this is like, you know, 20 people working, <laughs> working on a, a movie at a studio. It's just like, it's, it's not a lot of people. So yeah, yeah. What is that like? How is it similar? What are you doing there? So you're breaking up just a little bit. One more time. Oh, um, can you hear me now? Am I? I can hear you. Yeah, you're okay. good. Um, when you make the leap to Google, YouTube, what's that like? Um, what are you doing there? How is it similar or different? Yeah, so YouTube Originals was, I went there to help build that, that uh, platform as well. 
And uh, that one was different. You know, the way the business model there is a little bit different where it's more licensing based. And obviously at the time I was there, they had a hybrid model, which is like they had subscription. So, you know, you pay a monthly fee to watch uh, premium content and, and they had also had AVOD. So advertising based content where it's in front of the paywall. Uh, that is to say, you know, you watch a show or, or a clip. I mean, even to this day on YouTube, if you don't pay the premium, there's a commercial every two or three minutes. And so <clears throat> before at Amazon that we don't, we, you know, we don't do advertising based content or we hadn't at that time, but uh, at YouTube you do. So, you know, that, that puts a whole different, uh, you know, light on, on what you're doing because you have to take into consideration the advertisers and, and the advertisers in relation to what types of people you're trying to market your show to. So if there's a sort of teen, teen show, you know, early, 20 show, then it gets weird because, you know, you have advertising advertisers who want to be conscious of, you know, what you can and can't show to these 20 somethings who, you know, you guys, you know, know the content I'm talking about, but at the same time, if it gets too risque, then you're like dealing with, you know, ratings bodies in individual territories all over the world who are saying, Hey, this may work for 17 year olds in the U S but here in quote, you know, Turkey, we, this is too racy for our teenagers or whatever country it may be. So these advertising rating uh, sort of intersections gets very weird, especially when GDPR dropped um, and AVMS. And these are like acronyms for regulations and laws that came out of the UK that started to try to protect the privacy of children, essentially. Yeah, and in class, students can remember you mentioning these because we'll return to talking about them. Okay, good. And I'm paraphrasing for, for the purposes of this conversation, but yeah. they complicate a lot of things for that platform in particular. Yeah, cool. Sorry, my computer is making weird noises because of course it is. And I'm it's trying okay. to get that to stop. Okay. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you're working with advertisers. It sounds like you're dealing outside of just the U.S. as a territory. A lot, yeah. So is that the case with both Amazon and with Google? Uh, I, would say I, I would say that because the infrastructure was, was like we were able to build it at Amazon, like where we had teams in each territory once, you know, I had helped in whatever territory it was I was helping, a little bit more hands-off. Um, by the time I left that first time, but at, at YouTube originals, very different because the originals team was only in the U S and so we were having to deal with all the, the territory by territory issues internationally. So it just get, it gets very complicated and uh, you know, you have to localize the content. So that means like, Hey, if we're making a U.S. version of a show, then we have to make sure that that distribution of the show in another country, you know, is a whole separate package where, the subtitles and dubbing and the ratings all have to be, um, you know, appropriate for for that for that country and legal for that matter. <clears throat> yeah, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> and that's on top of the making the deals for the show. So I'm not even mentioning, you know, negotiating and drafting the licenses. Yeah. So I guess if you can sort of talk through, like, what are the what's the scope? You're you're doing the talent deals. You're doing the advertising deals who what what different sort of stakeholders are you dealing with in that kind of position yeah so so at, at youtube originals because it was more of a like they license a lot of content you don't you're not making a lot of talent deals because the licensor or you know the person who you are getting the content from they were on the hook to make those deals and bring you 
a package for the show that you say, hey, for these exclusive amount of years, we want this product project. And then, you know, after this term ends, then you can have it and take it somewhere else. And a good real world example of that is Cobra Kai. So Cobra Kai was our show when I was at YouTube Originals. And uh, we had it for an exclusive term. I think Sony was the production arm on that one. And then that ended. So now if you go on Netflix today, Cobra Kai is on the, you know, the, uh, the, the big like header uh, banner on Netflix as of like this week. So <clears throat> that's how licenses work. They, you have them for an exclusive term and then when you lose them or they become non-exclusive, meaning they exist in both places, then you'll see it somewhere else. So that was a, that's like the big difference at a place like YouTube Originals. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if they were doing any of their own originals as well, but it sounds like they were. They tried and then it kind of, they realized the advertising model works better for that platform. And yeah. so once you go advertiser friendly, then you kind of narrow the type of content you can make. So you can't do the racy, you know, provocative, vanity laced content because you got to appease, you know, Johnson and Johnson, whoever it is that wants to run a commercial during your TV show. So <clears throat> they decided to go more like, Justin Bieber documentary, you know, that type of thing. Did you find the experience of working at Google to be di uh, similar or different from being at Amazon? Is this sort of tech culture somewhat consistent or? Yeah, I mean, tech culture is the same in a lot of ways, but Google has a very specific culture. So it's very laid, a lot more laid back than Amazon. You know, Amazon's like, like take all the frills away. Like let's, it's customer focus, you know, whereas Google, you know, they take care of their employees, obviously. So it's a lot more, I thought, and this is my personal opinion, not my professional opinion, but I thought it was a little more cushy and um, you know, I, and yeah. And I think they were just, they were just getting started on their, their strategy, content strategy. So I think they've gotten it a lot more narrow. So at that time it was a lot of, you know, let's see what works. Whereas now I think they've, they've, figured it out and got some got their leadership there to to, to get on board so yeah I know that they've changed their strategy here and there quite a bit and it sounds like you were heading yeah. out as their originals strategy move right yeah change of names change of strategy that's part that's also part of the tech world is a lot of rapid iteration so let's see what works if it doesn't work try something different so so you go back to Amazon and you are now in a different role, a different position. So how did that kind of play out? And if you can talk about sort of the trajectory you've taken since you've gotten back there. Yeah, I think I always knew I wanted to, to be in business affairs. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, net, it's a natural step from being an entertainment lawyer because you go from basically negotiating the 50 page document to the 10 most important, important uh, points of the deal with, you know, more agent heavy. So, you know, when you're in-house counsel, you're dealing with all the law firms around town and, you know, the 50 pages of negotiations or whatever it is and of, of the boilerplate, which is like the long paragraphs and things like that. Whereas when you business affairs, you're an agent. So you're on the phone all day with CAA, WME, ICM, um, you know, a UTA, the, the big agencies in Hollywood. And so you just are basically negotiating with those folks um and you're only talking about the five or ten most important points of the deal so the money how long uh what can you do while you're working for us uh, otherwise known as exclusivity um trying to think of other points you know bonuses things like that 
So I'm curious, are you mainly dealing with agents? Do you ever deal with talent having attorneys or managers, especially in this weird yeah. moment we're in? <laughs> yeah, so you, I think you've highlighted a key point, which is the ATA, WGA, uh, sort of weird guild um, world we're in right now, where basically, the, the, I think you guys might know a lot about this, but the backstory is, is the writers, via the Writers Guild, got really upset about agency packages which are when agents or agencies can put together a writer, director, and, or various elements of a show that are all their clients. And then when they, you know, you make a deal with them, they say, hey, these are all William Morris Endeavor clients, WME clients. So we deserve a small percentage of the budget from this show. And so the writers got really upset because they said, hey, you're packaging me with this director only so that you can make money when maybe that's not the best director for my show. So it becomes a conflict of interest. Uh, you know, that's what's been asserted by the writers. So it's been, you know, turned into a very long and contentious argument. And as a result, a lot of writers um, fired their agents. So what that caused, circling back to, to your question, Lisa, which is uh, it caused a lot of managers and lawyers to now represent these writers um, in, in negotiations that normally were like five or 10 points in and out. Now lawyers know what they're going to see when all of these five or 10 points go to long form. So that it's a lot more comprehensive than, than you'd like it to be. So. <clears throat> so just add, adding to the process, right? <laughs> adding to the, pro the process I've tried to get away from has now come back to haunt me. I'm sorry. Um, so I'm curious, um, if you can talk a little bit about like, to what extent are you, do you see yourself as involved in content creation? Do you see any sort of creative roles tied to what you're doing? Or are you thinking mainly in terms of like contracts, negotiations and that sort of line of things? Yeah, no, I think within the context of my job, uh, you know, I've, I'm not making a lot of creative decisions, but I have a lot of input. So what I'm doing is contextualizing this deal uh, against the backdrop of like, for example, hey, we want to put X actress in this show and we think she should make this much money per episode. So as a part of my job, I'm looking on at her credits and sort of uh, her stature, what gravitas she has, like, <clears throat> does she command this money we want to pay her? Because we are in a no quote world, which means uh, the courts basically ruled um, that you cannot ask uh, a lawyer or a representative for what the person last made on their last show. So when I first got in the industry, it, you could get a what you call a quote, which is they, you could ask someone's manager, agent, lawyer, hey, what did you make on your last show? Okay, cool. We're just going to pay you 5% more than you made on your last TV show. And then it made the negotiation really easy. But now you cannot do that. Uh, labor law has changed in California and New York where you can't ask for that. So you have to like just basically be creative and figure out what you think this person's creative value is worth. Um, or, you know, here's the budget to my show. How does the script fee back into that, um, into that larger budget or development budget that we may have? So are you also signing deals for like overall deals or exclusive deals, either for talent or production companies? Like how, like how does that fit in what you're doing? Yeah, overall, overall and first look deals. Um, we, we do a lot of those where we basically, you know, take a piece of talent and we say, hey, we get a first look at every feature you make. So you have to come to us first 
on an exclusive basis. And if we pass, then you can take it out to the town or an overall deal where we say anything you make is ours for two years and we pay you, you know, a, a fee for those two years. And then we basically negotiate inside numbers for every show we might elect to proceed with. Now I'm curious, um, from what I understand, one of the changes that's happened is that there isn't any sort of back-end negotiation anymore, or is there like, um, because of the way your model works relative to like the old syndication model? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wanna be very careful on how much I talk about okay, <laughs> this uh, <laughs> on our back-end model. So I'm actually, I'm actually gonna like skirt this one just a little bit. That's right. But yeah, yeah, I will say this as a, as a matter of course, some studios have a, a freely negotiable back in definition and you know some companies have one that's sort of pre-negotiated based on an amount of points that you might get and so for those of you who don't know what back a back end is it's basically wants to show <clears throat> you deficit finance so you go into debt to make a show essentially um, and once that show breaks even the money after that is what you might split uh, with with the show's participants so there's a pot of money once the show breaks even and makes money that everyone splits up. So that's a, you know, you can, another word for it is net proceeds. So net is, you know, the cost that what it makes after you make your cost. And then you divide all those monies up based on a definition. So different studios and networks have different definitions. I'm not going to get myself in trouble here. And talk about Sorry, it was, it was not it's designed to cause trouble. It's all good. Really? I, I know you have to be careful. Um, yeah, so totally. moving on. And maybe this is a question also that, I don't know how much you can get into, but I'm curious, like how Amazon Prime functions in relationship to like larger Amazon. Is it a fairly autonomous sort of unit or is there some sort of back and forth between certain figures or stakeholders? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some connected tissue up to Seattle. Um, because I mean, at the end of the day, like every, and this is no secret, right? Every, everything in the Amazon world Ex with the exception probably to AWS is to drive prime subscriptions. Right. So, um, to that end, it's like, you know, we, we all have to answer that call at Amazon, to, no matter what unit you work in, um, whether it's audible or whatever, you know, it's all meant to, you know, look back towards Amazon proper. Thanks. Um, so I'm curious if you can kind of map out like, what are the like what are the divisions that you'd work with like in amazon like development executives or production yeah. just so students can kind of get a sense of like what's the landscape here if you're gonna if you want to work at amazon studios what would be the different divisions yeah so so when i earlier i said you know i'm basically an agent on behalf of the studio and if i was were able to sort of narrow that down to who specifically i'm an agent for within the studio it's it's our creative development execs so if they say hey we want to make a deal for this you know property or we want to do a co-production deal with this studio to make this show or we want to hire this actor this director um then i would go out and make the deal on their behalf and and negotiate that so i like most of my interaction is with the creative team um and then once i'm done with my part i have some limited interaction with the legal team to the extent they're trying to you know draft what i've negotiated and interpret what i what I meant by this word when I agreed to this much money in a deal or, um, and so forth and so on. So I'd say, and then production too, just in case like once we green light a show and we go into production, 
then, you know, I have to answer questions on like, hey, we're going to hire these day players or we're going to hire these actors, you know, that we didn't contemplate. But, hey, we're going to hire this director. He needs to hop on a plane and tomorrow we got to negotiate this deal. So. That's helpful. So when you were saying going to legal, that would be where you used to be, right? I used to be down down the chain um, (laughs) that way. Yeah. And then is there any sort of engagement with like marketing or are you dealing with advertising at all? Yeah. So I think a a good way to think about this is if you read like, which I encourage you all to do if you want to be in the sort of TV movie uh, business is to read Deadline and Variety, read the trades. That's a great way to educate yourself with like very low impact. You can just hang out, you know, in your apartment or whatever. And when you wake up with a cup of coffee and just read, you know, Deadline Hollywood or Variety and just see what's going on in, in town. But a good example to, to go back to your question is when I close a deal for a big actor or something like that, then I will, you know, coordinate with our marketing or our PR team who will, you know, basically help either, you know, make the, they will let us know what the press release will say. So I'll work with them to, to say like, Hey, this was, this is accurate within the context of the deal. Yes. That can go on the press release. No, that is not true. Don't put that in. So I'm curious, did you do, you mentioned some theatrical films, like were there, was there dealing with like exhibitors at all or in terms of like the distribution process? Yeah, when, and I did movies the first time I was there on the movie side, I slotted in for a few months. um, And I'm just trying to think, I was mostly on the development side of the movie uh, deals. So, which is almost like a BA function, business affairs function. So it was like the, the 10 high level points, like, box office bonus, how much money do we agree that the budget is, those types of things. Gotcha. Very Thank high you. level, yeah. Yeah, so I'm curious, and this is sort of branching out now to look sort of larger media industry stuff, get you away from any specifics to you on <laughs> Amazon. Um, I'm curious if you can speak to changes that you have seen emerging on the legal or contractual side of things whether due to COVID or just more generally because of everything that's changing Mm -hmm. in the industry? Yeah, I think uh, specific, I mean, let's talk COVID, right? You know, I think this is no secret. Every studio in town is trying to figure out how to shoot in a COVID world um, and how to deploy, you know, strategies that reduce the risk of folks getting sick. And to be quite honest, reduce the risk of one person getting sick because in a production world, if one person gets sick and takes down the whole show, the shutdown costs are astronomical. Um, and the restart costs to restart a show are astronomical. And, you know, I'm not even sure where folks are netting out with the insurance companies, but you have to remember, you know, to even rely on insurance to pay millions of dollars to shut down a show, who knows if they honor that type of thing. And I'm not speaking to what we have or haven't or have encountered these are just this is just me thinking off the top of my head um if i were at any studio like hey if, this, if the insurance companies know that hey all these shows around town where you know when they shoot around the world could shut down at any moment because somebody's sick will they really you know buy the insurance for those shows and pay millions of dollars when they know for a fact people will probably you know or could not probably but you know could get sick so it's just navigating those types of things i think that's I don't even think that's specific to entertainment. You know, you're seeing it right now with the foot, you know, football teams around the country 
trying not to cancel games. Those are, that's TV money, TV revenue that doesn't get, you know, triggered if, you know, two top 10 teams don't get to play on a particular Saturday, you know, the, the conference loses money, the school loses money, et cetera. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I can imagine a challenging environment right now for so many reasons for everyone in this industry and many others. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if you can give students a sense of what a day-to-day or week-to-week life for you would be like, what would you be balancing or what would you be, what might you be doing in broad strokes in terms of the varied tasks and responsibilities? Yeah. I'm going to say pre COVID, right. Cause now I have two kids. So I, <laughs> that's a big part of my day now. Um, but pre COVID, I would say, you know, part of it is uh, prioritizing is a big one because what I do is very fast paced. And so you, at any given time, I, you know, I think there was a point in the summer when I had like, probably 30 or 40 open deals. Um, and so just n- no, getting a flow and knowing which ones are important to close now and which ones can like be, uh, you know, nurtured along until the end of the week or they're not, or if 10 of them need to get done within a few days, just prioritizing is a big one. Um, I would say rapport building with agents. So just like making sure my relationships are being maintained with folks that I, negotiate negotiate with around town that's a big one um so sometimes i'm just like again pre-covid just coffees and drinks and lunches with all the agents around town just because you know i think a misconception is that you're on the phone yelling every time you negotiate a deal that's not true you know a lot of agents and folks are friends and so and it's it's better that way so when you get on the phone they know like hey we're like we're just gotta negotiate to 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 the best of our abilities to get our clients where they need to be but this doesn't have to be contentious, you know? So if I'm telling you this is all I can give you, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but you know, it, it definitely contemplates the fact that you're gonna have to deal with these people on the next deal. And it's the same way. They could be, you know, setting a market price that's higher than it really is for a piece of intellectual property that a show might be based on. So relationship management is a big one, is internally it- and externally. Is it mostly being in the office or just going out for coffee, drinks, that sort of thing? Or are you traveling at all for this type of work under normal yeah. circumstances? Yeah, yeah. Under, under, no, under normal circumstances, uh, you know, I'm so coffees, drinks, dinner, lunches, that type of thing. But office work, you know, you have to, you know, draft your offers and all that kind of stuff and be on the phone quite a bit. Um, I think I would have traveled a little bit more to set um to table reads and things like that in a normal world obviously that's just not even on the table at all right now and in my previous life as a production attorney in-house or and and as you know counsel for these bigger companies i would travel quite a bit actually so you know i was on set for mozart in the jungle and transparent and all those shows and um when i was working for, for those guys so are you ever dealing with city or state or national governments in your capacity or is that kind of outside the scope of what you're doing? It, it depends on the issue. You know, sometimes you have a public policy team on your, within your, like Google, YouTube, they had a really strong public policy team. They have a strong one at Amazon too, but because of all the regulatory issues that YouTube in particular faced because of all the miners and trying to navigate all the different ratings and all that, the public policy team there was very active, so I didn't have to do it as much. Uh, but um, 
in my first stint at Amazon, certainly I think I had to deal with some government agencies on a rare occasion, but sometimes. Gotcha. So again, back to sort of your views on the media business. I'm curious, you, you spoke, of course, about COVID, but during the time you've been in the industry, like, can you speak to like, what do you see as some of the major changes that you've noticed taking place? And like, how has that changed what you do? Yeah, I think, and I, I'm, I'm going to bet that you've touched on this in your class, but the mergers are, are a big, 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 big deal right now. Um, so, you know, obviously you have your Disney, ESPN, ABC, Hulu, Fox uh, family. You got your AT&T, Warner, and HBO, <laughs> Turner family. And then you have your Comcast, NBC, you know, Peacock, like, this is a return to pre-1970. And that is an important benchmark to note because uh, for historical context, uh, the FCC deployed the financial interest and syndication rules, which was meant to keep the three big networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, from basically like taking the shows that they had produced, so they have a financial stake in those shows, and putting them on their own network in syndication in primetime so that basically, you know, the more it shows you run, the more money you make. So it's, you know, it's self-interested. So they basically like, uh, basically overtake the entire vertical supply chain. Um, and they, you know, from soup to nuts, they own it and distribute, distribute it on their own network. So it, it creates like somewhat of a conflict of interest. In the early 90s, that goes away and, uh, a little bit. Um, and so now you have the same thing sort of happening again where, uh, you know, a bigger parent company or network, you know, has vertical alignment all the way down and even, you know, even relationships or affiliates really is, a, really is a better way to say it, affiliated relationships with other networks too and down to the sub-production companies. So a good example of this, just so I'm not like talking to, uh, you know, hypothetically or whatever is, um, or in the abstract is uh, like, um, Comcast, um, or let's see. Yeah, it, yeah, I guess like an NBC studio, right? If they produce a show, um, you know, then they just put it on Peacock or NB, like the network NBC. Or if ABC Studios, which is where I used to work, made a show for ABC, the network, and they just put only their shows on there, then, you know, it would be, it would be an issue. So a lot of people don't know this, like if you aren't in the industry, but shows like, I'm pretty sure Modern Family was in a different studio produced that maybe Fox or somebody produced it for ABC, the network. So going back to my original uh, answer on this question, because of all this vertical alignment and the mergers, now you have studios who just make content for their networks only, which has created a very interesting vacuum in town, which is like who can get the most talent signed under an overalls so that you have this talent who can make content for these handful of networks so if you get for example and this is not anything uh confidential or limited to my work but like if you read the trades right and a and an artist gets signed i say artist um that's a legal term but if a writer gets signed to uh, an overall deal at let's see i'm looking at my notes here at uh hbo and they say hey because we now have affiliated relationships with warner turner hbo max when you come and write for us, you can now write, you don't have to just write these hour long shows for HBO. If you want to dabble in a half hour for TBS or TNT, you can do that too. 
So now this person getting the overall is incentivized to go to places like this where they can write for different places. You know, same thing if you go to Fox, maybe you write for Fox proper or FX, you know, um, and that goes all the way up to Disney. That's a whole relationship now that can be exploited in a very different way. Um, so it remains to be seen what that means, but it definitely is of interest in our, in our town. I mean, are you finding yourself turning, I know that you have a deal with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and um, certain other key talent. Um, I'm curious if you're finding yourself turning more to independent studios like Lionsgate or unaffiliated companies, smaller companies, or like is everyone sort of trying to scramble right now to figure out who their suppliers will be? Uh, I'm gonna answer this one in the abstract, just so again, so I, I skirt yes. any and I mean that in the issues. abstract. <laughs> no, it's all good. In the abstract, I would say there's one key deal that I'm not mentioning that gets made to sort of bridge the gap. And that's a co-production deal. So if there's another studio who has a piece of intellectual property or a show that you want to make or that you can't get otherwise, sometimes you partner with another studio to make that show. So there's overalls where the person is exclusive to you. And then there's like co-production deals where, hey, I can't get, I can't work with that person, but hey, maybe I can work with the studio who has that person. And then we kind of split the bucket um, and we both make money and we just have, you know, we can exploit this show for a specific amount of time. Gotcha. And I know from, I think, and you, you don't have to nod, but from having read the trades, like Homecoming is an example of that, right? With, yeah. is that with Universal? And yeah. I'm, I, I don't quote me, but I think so. The Julia yeah. Roberts show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was my show when I was on legal too, exactly, uh, as well. Cool. So um, I don't know if you can speak to this, but um, who would Amazon perceive as its main competitors? Amazon Prime. I know that Amazon's weirdly positioned, so I don't even know if that's something. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, again, I'm going to be very careful here <laughs> how I answer this, but I think like if you were just, you know, an average reasonable person, as we say in the legal com community, like any sort of like SVOD platform, right? Like Netflix, Apple, Hulu, those are the, the sort of family of uh, SVOD, uh, subscription video on demand uh, platforms that feel the same, right? Yeah, and I don't mean to walk you into minefields, but I know that you can <laughs> navigate No, I mean, I think, I think you can make that deduction pretty reasonably. Um, um, well, I'm curious if you can speak for, for students that are trying to figure out, okay, it's COVID, it's a recession, I'm graduating. Do you have recommendations about things that they might do or growth areas in your industry that they could be looking at right now as they're finishing up? Yeah, I think, I think I'm going to give some soft advice first. So non-career related, which is, you know, don't panic. Because when I graduated, obviously not in a pandemic, but when I graduated from law school and I was ready to start my career. So if you don't go to grad school, you know, you'll be in the same place where the economy was a little bit uncertain, things like that. I mean, the economy crashed. I mean, it crashed. You know, there was a housing crisis. The, you know, we had a financial, what, what, I don't think it was depression, but they called it, a, what was the term, Lisa, do you remember? It was like, it definitely was not good at the that time. The Great Recession. The Great Recession. Thank you. Um, and so like, I'm telling you, I had people at the very top of my law school class who the big, you know, top five law firm, you know, 
Jones Day or whoever it was would call, would call them the week before they were going to go fly to their new job and say like, I'm sorry, we have to furlough you. So it, you know, it was, it was a very scary time, but I will say that, you know, just stay the course on what you want to do. So like just because certain doors are closed in terms of what you could do um, like job wise or may not be open right now, that doesn't mean they'll always be closed. So you just get creative, right? You get creative and you be fearless. So I think there's a misconception that failure is like, if you do something that doesn't work out, or if you have this goal that kind of falls through or you change your mind about a goal and like, that's not failure. So like, just, just try something and it'll inform your next decision. So for me, you know, I just was fearless. I would like slept on a friend's couch and I wasn't, you know, uh, an uh, assistant on the desk making no money attempt for a time too. And the inter- at these studios, just trying to get my foot in the door. And um, once they were, you know, the economy recovered, I was well positioned to go somewhere and kind of start my career. So it's really just like planting seeds. You, know, you, you might not knock it out of the park the first time, you know, but just like plant seeds. And while you have time right now, while the world is trying to figure itself out, like figure out what you want to do. You know, my, one of my big mantras is like, like let your purpose inform what you do with your career because your, your, your career might change. Even if you know right now for the first 10 years, it could change. But if you know like what your purpose is, then like that'll give you a lot more certainty. And you might not know that right now and you're still in college having a good time, but start to have those conversations with yourself you know, and so that whatever that purpose is, it'll anchor you in terms of where you might go. So you, you might try TV, you might try music, but you always know like, hey, I'm meant to be a creative. I'm meant to do X, Y, Z. So like, I'm always coming back to this, um, coming back to one here. So that'd be my, my advice is like, don't panic, stay the course, be creative. If, if some of you guys wanna be creative right now as a means to explore the entertainment industry, start making short form content with your cell phone. Like, just make a show. This, I just ran into a family here in Nashville and their son is in Dallas. And he, uh, like, literally, like, yeah, he was at UT, I think, for a year. And he dropped out or something like that and made a movie. And the Duplass brothers, like, jumped on to help him produce. So, you know, I'm not advocating dropping out of school because, you know, we need <laughs> you here, Moody. But I am advocating being creative and being fearless. And failure is just when you stop trying. So don't try try everything try weird things like go shoot a weird video and try to hire your friends to like be the editor be the sound engineer you know like just be creative and be fearless you can't fail right now like you're you got a lot of time i think i think inspirational words are very meaningful at this moment and necessary because it is such a time where alienation is so common right yeah i agree i agree (laughs) um are there recommendations you have in terms of, you know, you mentioned reading the trades, you mentioned going out and shooting things. Like what are some other potential pieces of advice you might have in terms of ways students can prepare themselves for the future careers that they might have? Yeah, I think, um, I think just being forward thinking too. So I'm going to, again, my, my career track is like a timeline I was on. Right. But when I when I got to law school, by the time I had my first internship at ABC Studios, I, had, I told myself, I will, if I can help it, I'll never go to a traditional studio when I start my first job. I will go to what I termed then 
a digital company because I could see the things that we were talking about in these big meetings at the big studios, they were way behind, right? And that's starting to play out now where they're trying to play catch up and, you know, they've had to buy companies who do what they couldn't do, right? So that's why you see a Disney acquiring Hulu because Hulu was ahead of the game with the, you know, the S5 platform and all that type of thing. Um, so, you know, be forward thinking. So right now, right, what's popular right now? Netflix and, you know, Hulu, Amazon, all these guys are popular, but what is bubbling right now? Micro content, right? So you have, you know, I almost went to Quibi last year, but you have places like Quibi who are, I'm not saying they will be the ones who knock it out of the park and really, you, you know, hone it, but like a company like that could really knock it out of the park with short form content. Um, so just like thinking about where, where we're going, think about how you consume content. Now you are the people who drive what people at these big companies do. So if you're saying like, I'm realizing every day I do this type of thing, think about that for, because that's who, you know, you're the person who is being marketed to. So if you can sort of like hone that or, or, you know, encapsulate that for yourself, to, to help inform your own, uh, you know, career strategy, then to that end, I would, I would advise you to, to think about that. So you, you harness all the power now, you just don't even know it. <laughs> that's, that's very helpful advice. Um, I'm curious, what do you think about the question of, should I move to LA or should I move to New York or should I, you know, do you think that there's locale, like do, should students wanting to work in entertainment still be thinking of those places or other places on the radar? That's, that's a complicated question now because I think people in those in, in the industry now are having that same conversation with themselves who live there. Um, you know, I think it doesn't hurt, right? Let's just say everything vaccine comes out, everything goes back to normal. Yeah. I would say go there because it's invaluable to be on the ground and meet the people and the players and get the experience um, to work in those industries and, in, you know, New York, LA, you know, but, that being said, you know, if you could create your own niche industry in places too, like I know Austin's got a cool film community and music community, you know, you got places like, and think outside of the box, places like Atlanta, if you want to stay like in the South or whatever, are exploding right now um, uh, with, with production, TV and film. And, you know, but I don't think it ever hurts to go to the place because there's nothing like meeting people who do what you want to do and like, bouncing ideas and creativity and strategies and dreams and hopes off those folks. But certainly like, if you think the city's not my jam there, the world is changing in that way where maybe you could do something that you had to be, you know, in LA or New York to do, you can move and do it somewhere else. So I live in Nashville now. Um, so I'm, I work remotely and, and plan to commute into LA back and forth once things go, get to back to a normal state. So. I know it is weird to ask some of these questions now because it's sort of we're 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 speaking past tense sort of and future predictive. Right? We're in a very weird little time machine right now. <laughs> yeah, and, but you all are getting back up to production, if I'm not mistaken, or yeah, we we are. I think that's public. Yeah, um, we're trying to. You know, we're being very cautious, as cautious as you can be, um, and so so far so good. 
so far so good. Knock on, I'm knocking on wood or yeah. window. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm also curious, um, and, and maybe I, I shouldn't even ask this because it sounds like you've been so thoughtful and strategic about your trajectory, but if you knew then what you know now, like are there things that you might've done moving up in your career that you would reassess or recommend for students to think about yeah. do thing, you know? First of all, I wouldn't say I was so strategic. I mean, I've thought about things and, you know, like I'm work, I, you know, you work as hard as you can where you are so that you position yourself when somebody knocks on the door to invite you to go somewhere else. But I w if I could talk to my like past self, I would say, don't do things you ought to do. Do things you're passionate about. Um, there's no pressure on you to do any like thing a certain way or perfectly. Uh, don't don't be a prisoner to perfectionism. Um, be yourself. And so, you know, I think, especially when you're, you know, I won't speak for you guys, but you know, early 20s, teenager, you know, mid 20s, even, you're kind of looking around what everybody else is doing to, to inform you on what you should be doing. But really, that answer is not outside of yourself is it's, it's inside of yourself. And it always has been. So um, if I could give that advice to my my past self, I would do that. Like, don't take the pressure off yourself so that you can really hear what you want to do from, from inside and not outside. And you, and also like failure is when you just stop and quit altogether. It's not if you have a hiccup or you have a setback or if you change your mind on what you want to do, or even if you completely change careers altogether, that's, that's not a failure. That's just life. So have, enjoy it, have fun. Um, you know, take, take, those things serious take fun seriously take your problems lightly like it should be the opposite you know don't give it too much energy well we have a very quiet group but i want to solicit if anyone wants to put in some questions in the q a section to let us to put those in and while i see if, if anyone's going to pop up with any questions i'll ask you my usual concluding question which cool. is what are you watching these days yeah, so um, I'm watching. My wife and I are watching Shit's Creek um, on Netflix, um, which is awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and in between that, we usually do like we usually binge like an older show. So we just finished um, Community. Uh, if there are any Community fans, and uh, yeah, so that's it for right now. With and I guess I should I guess I should mention one of our shows. I'm <laughs> on here. Given, uh, you know, all the airtime to our competitors. But, um, yeah, in terms of Amazon shows, The Boys is a cool show. Obviously, that's done really well for us. And the talent, Ms. Maisel, is, is great with Rachel Brosnahan. I've been Ivy seeing Rachel. lots of buzz about The Boys. You yeah. can have great stuff yeah. uh, coming. Flea Bag is great if you like that sort of thing. Okay, we have some questions starting to show up. So, Kelsey is wondering... What did set visits look like as a lawyer? Did you ever have to answer legal questions while on set? No, I mean, it, so like early days, right? As a non-scripted attorney, like sometimes you do, if somebody's gonna do something ridiculous or it's risky, you might, but you know, later days, because when you get to like a premium studio, the production team crew and everybody's so on top of it, like they know exactly what they're doing you know, you don't really have much input. Sometimes you're just going to, again, like uh, manage your relationships. So, you know, if you're in contact with the main producer or the line producer, 
on a show, um, like it's the FaceTime is important because that's, that is the liaison between set and the studio. Um, and they interact with talent, the writers, direct and directors and, and things like that. So you want to have a good relationship with, with the line producer. Great. Um, Leslie asks, outside of age restrictions and considerations, what differences did you face between above the line traditional talent and digital content creators, especially at YouTube? Uh, and let me, I'm going to read this too. So I make sure I'm answering your question directly. That one's in the chat instead of. Okay. The Can you ask the second part again about the, sure. so aside from age restrictions. Okay. Um, outside of age restrictions and considerations, what differences did you face between above the line traditional talent and yeah. digital content creators, especially at YouTube? That's a really good question. Um, I think the challenge, right? Like I think the right way to frame this is like now on in scripted TV at a place like Amazon studios, the guilds help a lot. Right. So any above the line, like, or an actor, right. Uh, I'm negotiating with is governed by SAG or any writer I'm working with is governed by the WGA um, and, and so forth and so on. Whereas that these content creators, there's no guild. They really don't have like the most savvy representation either. So if you have like a YouTuber who's like, okay, I'm making some money. got, you know, half a million subscribers. The people that they hired that, that are in that space aren't the most like savvy lawyers and reps. So like the things they focus on are kind of distracting. You know, whereas, you know, you, get, you can get those deals done a lot quicker if there were some parameters. Now, that being said, I think that those are being established now that more deals are being made and people are taking these YouTubers more seriously. Um, so. Thank you. Um, Eric asks, if there, do you think there's going to be a valley in available content because of COVID non-production? Are there opportunities there? I definitely think there are. And again, this, so this is my personal opinion, not my professional opinion, but I think in 2021, adult animation is going to absolutely explode. We've already seen it do really well. You know, you have like Archer on FX and obviously like Fox in general, just like really crushes it. Um, for, the Simpsons has been running for like 20 plus years or whatever. And all Bob's Burgers, like um, Netflix has Bojack Horseman, things like that. So I think, like we're seeing it bubble a little bit for us, but I just wouldn't be surprised if you see adult animation absolutely explode when it gets to consumer in 2021. Like from a practical, practical perspective, it's, it's easier to, or safer to produce because you can have people do voiceover remotely, you know, and then you, you ship out the animation to like an animator in, you know, Japan or Korea or wherever. And there's, you know, they can figure out their protocols and processes to, to animate socially distanced or maybe just one person in a, at home on their computer. You know what I mean? The world is very different. So for any type of production with a lot for where you don't need a lot of people in one place, it's the only one I can think of. And i just feel like in terms of my finger being on the pulse or even just guessing 2021, just like middle of next year, keep your eye out for like a ton of adult animation or the end of that year. <clears throat> That's good to know. Um, one of the, the assignment my students are asked for their midterm is to uh, pick a category like animation or post-production or whatever and think about how COVID's affecting it and what they'll do for the future. So the animation yeah. group's got a good answer. <laughs> yeah. And I also think like, right, like sometimes necessity breeds like innovation. 
And so I think a lot of what's happening, and you guys think about it, things you do every day now that people are, be, are way more efficient because of COVID. Like, hey, how about a digital menu so that you, can, you don't have to like do all this business at the table when we go out to eat? Or, you know, I don't have to like wait and sign the check with eight different people. We just do it right here in this handheld thing. Same thing is happening in production. It's an awful, you know, metaphor, but, you know, it's like things that weren't streamlined because this is how they were done for 50 years are being streamlined now uh, because of COVID. So, like, do, do I need to have this person come to, like, some huge studio on the Sony lot to record voiceover? You know, um, I don't know. You know, if the whole music industry records Grammy-winning albums from their living room, you know, why, why you know, Charlie Puth can put out a song from his hotel room and like go viral why do we need to have vocal you know recordings and studios with 20 people who don't need to be there just send that audio to an editor a sound editor and pop it in you know in sync with the animation or whatever it is or adr we don't need to have somebody back that we don't need to have them come all the way to some studio you know i don't know the world is changing for for the better in some ways too Lots of new home studios popping up probably, right? Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> Claudia asks if there are specific internships you recommend if you're thinking of, become, of becoming an agent, and if so, what are those? Um, so first of all, I would say if you're already at UT, UTLA, like I'm going to say this, like obviously if you can do it virtually, do it. But if you can, once the world goes back to normal and you know for a fact you want to be in the entertainment industry, come to UTLA, apply, or UT New York. Uh, which is, is our new program as well. But it's like the best way to come and get an internship um, while you're in town and also learn about what all your other classmates are doing there too at the same time um, and meet tons of our alumni who are already, already in the industry. So great example of this is like my first week back to Amazon negotiating a high-level showrunner deal and it's my, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Howie Tannenbaum at ICM. So, you know, we have a great network of folks um, out there who are ready to like help you, encourage you and, and, and give you insight. And to, to answer your question more specifically, UTLA will really help you with the internships. Now, once you graduate school, if you know you wanna be an agent, go apply to be in the mailroom and, and just work your butt off at one of those agencies. I'm actually surprised no one this semester yet has mentioned the book, The Mailroom, which usually is something. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different world over there at the agency. So you just got to be ready. Yeah. Um, and one last question um, from Austin, who's, who asks, if you're able to say, what kind of content are you seeing the industry tend towards in regard to production and funding? For example, limited series, short form, um, brought, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I, so again, like, this is my own personal uh, hypothesis is that adult animation will, I, I just don't know how else you, what other content you could actually produce at a high clip um, other than adult animation. Again, that's personal, not professional opinion, but otherwise I think, um, I'm just trying to think. I think, the, I think the jury's still out on short form content. Like if, you, if you're the demographic they're trying to go after and you're asking me, then I don't think it's landed yet, right? Like I don't think, Quibi knocked it out of the park. Because um, the things you want to like short form binge, in my opinion, are things that your friends do on like TikTok. You know, it's not like I made this very serious drama that's five minutes. Like the arc is so short. Like who cares? Like why am I here on my phone? You know what I mean? So I think that the jury's out there. 
I do think um, like really premium scripted hour and half hour content will always be like, it's just the right amount of time to tell a story. If it's done right, you know, it's just, just really, really good, you know? And there's no commercials, right? So it's even better. You can binge it, you know. That seems like a good place to end and we're out of time anyway, but thank you so much, Jaren. We, we covered a lot of territory and uh, you were very inspirational too. So. I mean, I, I, I hope so. You know, we all need a little bit of hope right now. So keep yeah. your heads up guys, It'll this too shall pass. You know, just keep your head up and keep and keep stay focused on what you want to achieve. I appreciate you being so generous with your time with the students, and uh, I hope you have a great time adapting to your new Nashville life. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit rtf.utexas.edu slash MIC. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Leslie Willard, Brett Siegel, and Alex Remington. And the program was produced and edited by me, Kate Cronin. We hope you join us next time for another Media Industry Conversation. 